Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliette Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to us by our friends at Sleep Me. All sleep is not the same. Tell me more. Well, one of the things we're starting to recognize now, and we've known it forever, of course, deep sleep is the restorative sleep. That's when you're putting out all the growth hormone, you're getting all the recovery. Like it's deep sleep's important. But, but one of the ways to get really good deep sleep is to maintain a low body temperature while you're sleeping. Weird. And if you're super hot, you don't actually fall into that deep sleep as much or as well. I am a hot sleeper. I also am starting to be old. <laughs> old cat syndrome is starting to affect me. I'm starting to be almost 50. And one of the things that started to decay as I'm me measuring this thing regularly on my ring is that I get less and less deep sleep if unless I'm not on it. Which means it's more and more critical for you to make sure your body's at the right temperature so you get the requisite amount of deep sleep. Nailed it. Nailed so it. So deep, Juliet. Uh, if you want to improve your deep sleep, head on over to sleep.me slash TRS to learn more and save on the purchase of any new Cube or DocPro sleep system. Go to sleep.me slash TRS to take advantage of our exclusive discount and wake up knowing you got a ton of deep sleep. That's it. Don't let your deep sleep suffer from the fire legs. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Element. Look, one of the things that we have witnessed time and time again, especially for the past decade, is that people are moving back to eating whole foods, which is great. But then what's a downstream negative consequence of that? Well, I can't think of many, except <laughs> they've stopped salting their food and they are working out like maniacs and eating in sort of a very saltless way. And guess what happens? They don't feel as good. One of the things we love about Element is it's a simple way to just add a little salt back into our diet and also a lovely, tasty way to do it. Yeah. And so we are really on the tip of eating 800 grams of fruits and vegetables every day and getting enough protein in our diet, but we do actually have to consider our salt intake and we can really manage that by drinking an Element a day. It's an easy way, I think, to incorporate getting some of these essential salts, particularly after exercise. I think people are doing better, but they're not sort of appreciating that you are a bio, motor, electrical human being, and you need salt to run the system. Right now, if you order through our link, you get a free sample pack with all of Element's flavors. Go to drinkelement.com slash TRS. That's drinklmnt.com slash TRS. And if you think you're feeling better, give this Element a try. I bet you can feel even betterer. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are stoked to welcome Steffi Cohen. As a 25-time world record wait, wait, holding powerlifter, 25-time, and the strongest woman pound for pound in the world, Steffi has dedicated her life to pushing the boundaries of what is physically possible. In addition to her passion for sports, she's also a doctor of physical therapy, like you, an exercise physiologist, and she uses her knowledge and experience to educate the public about health and fitness. She is passionate about sharing evidence-based information using a no BS approach to help clear out the confusion that surrounds complex topics in the industry. She is also an author, podcast host, YouTuber, and influencer, and she uses her platform to share insights and inspire others to focus on building themselves from within. Steffi is also an advocate for women's rights and strives to inspire younger generations to make a positive impact on those around them through their skills and talents. Now, I just want to start by saying one of the things I enjoyed the most about this conversation was talking about physical therapy school. Yeah, I totally feel seen by Steffi's story where she went to grad school and started a business. And, and was, was a professional athlete. Right. And Steffi is extraordinary. I first came to Steffi aware. I think she's a powerlifter and I knew she was in grad school working on her way towards physio. And it's been so fun to watch her mature, completely dominate a sport, really push a business. It's She is an exceptional woman. Yeah. I mean, just hearing about her, you know, path uh, towards becoming great at many sports throughout her life and her continuing interest in pushing herself and being uncomfortable and taking risks. And it was just really fun to get to know her in this context. And it was an awesome conversation. Even if you don't think you are into powerlifting, listen to this episode. Steffi is an extraordinary person. And she talks about her sort of path across multiple sports and multiple life experiences. This has something for everyone. This is, I love this interview. Enjoy it. Steffi, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. 
So I want to um, start back, and I actually didn't know until I was reading about you before this podcast that you were a huge soccer player. I knew, because I'm a fan. You're a real fan. I'm a fan too, but somehow I missed that piece of fact. Anyway, I'd love to hear, you know, just in the arc of your amazing career as an athlete that you started in soccer and how did that begin? And I know you're on the national team and just tell us a little bit about sort of the beginning of your athletic career as a soccer player. Yeah. So soccer was my first love. I was introduced to it from my dad. He used to be a a semi or professional soccer player for France, which is where he was born and raised. And so he has two boys and I was the only girl in the family. And he really wanted me to kind of follow footsteps, his footsteps for his athletic career. And I didn't protest. I was always happy playing sports. It was kind of my sacred place always. So started playing soccer when I was about eight years old and absolutely loved it. But I sucked. I was so bad at it. But for me, it was all about spending time with my dad and spending time with my friends and just playing. You know, I was so focused on just having fun and enjoying the moment that I wasn't really thinking or putting any pressure on myself for a certain standard for how I should be performing. And then I did that forever. It felt like I think it was forever. I was 12 years old when I got offered to try out for the national team, when I kind of started getting noticed after many years of being benched. And yeah, next thing you know, I got into national soccer team for Venezuela, which is where I was born and raised. And I did that for about five years, climbed my way up to MVP, most valuable player and team captain and and all these other things and eventually landed a soccer scholarship in the US. And here we are. Then you just broke your dad's heart and we're like, I'm powerlifting. I can't wait to hear this. Yeah. Okay. But before we get to that, where did you end up going to play? So I got into San Diego State University to play division one. And it's interesting because even though I played at the highest level back home in Venezuela, it's not very glamorous at all to play any sports in Venezuela. It's a third world country that where we don't get any sort of funding from the government. I was getting paid $50 a, a month to play professional soccer. We played inside of the military base where, you know, we had our soccer field was just a dirt field. It didn't even have grass. Our goals had no nets. Our trainers were totally inexperienced, just like guys who maybe played soccer and that's it, but no formal education, no athletic trainers obviously no physical therapist, obviously no strength and conditioning coach. I'd never been inside of a a weight room in my life until I got into school here in the States. And so I remember the first day of training was a Monday at 5 a.m. It was in the weight room and I go in there and it's all these girls that are just like the military. You know, they're all lined up, all wearing the same uniform. They're all jacked. They all know what they're doing. And I'm just, this little girl from Venezuela (laughs) stepping foot inside of a weight room for the first time ever. And I felt so lost and so intimidated by just the level of professionalism and of skill that I was seeing. And it was really, really shocking. (laughs) It's funny. I laugh because, you know, a few years after I became the strongest woman in the world. So what was my biggest weakness eventually became my biggest strength. But I think it was that the lack of maturity and uh, combined with just how intimidating that whole experience was that that led me to quit. It's one of my biggest regrets now looking back. I just wish I was a little bit more mature or maybe had somebody next to me to tell me to keep going, even even though it was hard at the beginning, you know, because I do feel like I could have done something with that. But at the same time, I can't. It's not really a regret because I wouldn't be in the position that I'm in today. Right. If I hadn't switched paths. It begs a couple of questions. One is that, I mean, you've done okay for yourself, still doing okay for yourself as an athlete, which is bananas. But one of the things that we ask all our athlete friends, like who are the best athletes at the top of the game? One of our friends, professional cyclist, and I said, we were talking about Peter Sagan, this incredible cyclist. And I said, you know, he seems like he's so athletic. And he said, yeah, he could probably be a world champion in three or four sports. And sometimes it just turns out that people are so talented in a sport if they are given the care and feeding, they could be great at any sport. And I feel like that's certainly the case with you. It's interesting that that piece didn't work for you, but as you have traveled around and are now you know, in your third kind of major sport, at least that I'm aware of, maybe there are probably four or five more that I don't know about, 
But uh, you run into a lot of superstar mutants who almost could apply those skills anywhere. I totally agree with that. I think that there's obviously a genetic kind of physical component to those athletes' ability to perform at the highest level. But I think that the factor that really contributes the most to the development of, of a person at the highest level in anything has to do more with their mental strength and their grit. So the reason why I emphasize and I mentioned about how much I sucked when I first started playing soccer and the fact that I was so focused on just having fun, having a good time playing and developing relationships and all of these other kind of less important markers of performance is because I feel like that is what I learned there is what I've taken to every other sport and kind of applied it the same way. And it's what's allowed me to have the resilience and the patience and the kindness and compassion towards myself that allows me to devote enough time at something and eventually get good. Because that's the part that people people miss as they grow up and get older is that they become so impatient and they want results immediately. You know, delayed gratification is something, it's a skill that a lot of people have. And I just feel like through that experience, like six years in the trenches where I sucked and I was completely invisible to everybody else, but I kept showing up and I kept going for the right reasons. I took that to every other sport, you know, where I just keep showing up, even when I suck, even when it's boring, even when it feels mundane, even when I'm invisible and unnoticed, I just keep showing up and keep putting in the work and eventually it pays off. I love that. I relate to that a lot. And I'm wondering, where do you think that comes from? Like, why do you have that? Because I will say that I have very few athletic gifts when it comes to skill. But what I do have is the ability to suffer and be gritty. Like that much I know about myself. And that actually alone has taken me very far in my own athletic career in like much more micro way. But what do you think, like, where does that come from? And part of the reason I ask is because we are raising kids. And I think everybody wants to know, you know, how do I make my kid gritty? You know, where does that begin? How do you get that skill? I think anybody can harness that skill, the skill of resilience, the skill of grit, the skill of accepting discomfort. I feel like I didn't have a choice. It was just the way that I was brought up and the challenges and difficulties that were presented to me or that I had to go through and overcome paired with having really amazing role models. You know, I come from a family of warriors. My grandparents are both Holocaust survivors that literally walked from Romania to Israel, you know, for months. And that then uprooted their entire life and moved to Venezuela and started over. And and they started the first Jewish high school and did all of these incredible things. And then they had my mom, who was also a really strong female figure in my life and my sister and my dad. And so I just feel like I've been surrounded by people who are go-getters and warriors. So just having the right role models has been I think a pretty big determinant factor and and then just, yeah, what I've had to overcome and had to go through. One of the things that uh, I want to circle back to is you're in this weight room with these women who've been exposed to that. And it's something we talked to. I just talked to a bunch of recruits at a university. I was just like, are you in the weight room? Because you're going to expect be expected to speak this language unless you've been exposed to it. It's now you're playing a college sport and you have to manage yourself as a human being in college, which already I wasn't very good at, for example. And then you have to also manage the strength conditioning, all these things. Do you remember who that strength coach was? Because this team that I'm talking about at Cal has, Hank, shout out, has such an extraordinary environment and culture there. And it is the like the only safe place in all of athletics is the weight room because you're not being judged. You're not fighting for a position. You can work on all and develop all these strengths. And I know that you, this relates to you because, you know, you're such a good strength conditioning coach. But do you remember that person? And was that a lost opportunity? No, I don't remember. It definitely was a lost opportunity. Like, I've been asked this question a lot of times, like, what's one of your biggest regrets in life? And it's not continuing my soccer journey because I quit prematurely, right? I quit for all the wrong reasons. Now, I don't have anything against quitting. I'm actually a massive proponent of quitting. I don't think there's any shame in it. And I think that society heavily glamorizes uh, the grind, no pain, no gain, don't quit, whatever. And I couldn't disagree with that without more, but I did quit prematurely and for the wrong reasons. And I do kind of regret that. It says something about me, right? I, I've spent the last 12 years of my life undoing that feeling of guilt 
that came from quitting prematurely and kind of like that little part of my identity in that moment in time. So now I just never want to be in that position again. What were your reasons at, you know, because you said I quit, but for the wrong reasons at the time, what were those reasons other than that you were probably 18 and you know, in a away new country, home. away from home. And it, I mean, like, <laughs> the I, mean, was I, I can, yeah, you. I can think of some reasons, but what were your reasons? I just felt so overwhelmed. I felt like I had so much ground to make up for. I knew that I was potentially more skilled than a lot of the players, but I knew that in order to get to the top there, I was going to do an unsurmountable amount of work. And just because of everything else that was going on in my life at that point in time, like, I had to learn the language. I had to understand the culture. I had to make new friends. I had to f- just figure out everything, figure out what I, how to eat, where to get food. Like, how am I going to get money? How am I going to pay for the other part of my tuition? It's like, there was so many moving pieces that I just felt like I couldn't do it. I felt overwhelmed. But if it was me now, I would have absolutely found a way. One of the things I think <clears throat> I appreciated about you as an athlete, obviously you're brilliant physio, a good coach, all these things. But I see you really take care of the preparation of the whole person now. Maybe I'm, I'm projecting, but what I know about you, just like you're sort of, you have a complete game. One of the things I hear about that experience in college was the system let you down, that we didn't take care of a person trying to manage these things. And this was a long time ago. We'll put it, you know, it's a little bit different era. But so many times we... Jill and I obsess on watching sports documentaries and it's the rest of the thing. Playing the sport and training for the sport is the easy part. It's managing relationships and stress and all those other pieces. That ends up being the limiting factor. Do you feel like that experience of being so overwhelmed changed how you went in and managed some of these other aspects of your other sporting careers and other lives? I mean, yeah, absolutely. But I don't think that the issue was necessarily the system. I I don't even think that I was mature enough and able to recognize all of the things that I was dealing with at that moment that were leading me to feel so frustrated. You couldn't. That's what I mean by the system, I think, is that the culture, the whole thing needs to be set up to take care of a human being who is expected then to go out and be heroic on the pitch. Yeah, because then the problem becomes that all of this frustration and the overwhelming feeling is masked as weakness, right? Like if I don't show up to training, then I'm I don't want it enough. Or if I underperform, then I'm I'm not as skilled or as talented. When in reality, it was just like this whole hurricane tornado in my life that was happening that was preventing me from performing at the highest level. Two questions: Did you stay in school? Number two, I know maybe I don't have my timeline right, so you can correct me, but did you find CrossFit first and then start powerlifting? If you could just tell me a little bit about how did you discover CrossFit and were you still a student at that time? Like, how did that all come to pass? Yep. So I decided to move to Miami from San Diego because I was so culture shocked. Like, you don't understand. Even though I wanted to play soccer in the US and I wanted to advance my career and to have a future and all of these things, I was a kid. I was 17 when I left. And It was mainly a push from my mom. Like she packed my bags. She applied to school for me. She did all of this for me. I felt like I was just getting kicked out of my hometown, essentially, while all of my friends were still staying there and doing their thing and having fun. I was alone in another country by myself trying to figure all these things out. So I felt very homesick and I just felt like I was too far away from home, too far away from the culture that I was used to. So I moved to Miami, which is literally a replica of where I grew up. (laughs) (laughs) and I loved it I felt a little bit more at home and felt like I could breathe a little bit better I was only a two-hour flight from home which made it a lot easier for my parents to come visit and so on but yeah quitting soccer like UM didn't have a division one team so it wasn't even an option for me they had a club team that I initially started playing with but it wasn't going to go anywhere so I thought I was ready to give up that part of my identity as an athlete but I really wasn't. And I don't think I'll ever be. I've come to terms with that already, that I just need to be chasing something physical at the highest level at all times for as long as my body allows me to. But I definitely wasn't ready to part ways with that part of my identity at that point in time. So I entered kind of what I think about as a discovery period. And I think it's so important for people to do is 
get into things and try different things out without any sort of expectation for the future. Like if it's something that clicks with you and that works for you and that you can see yourself making progress at, then stick with it. And if not, there's no shame in trying something else, right? So I started that discovery period. And it was basically now looking back, I understand better what I was doing. I was trying to balance out these kind of three pillars in my head, my skills, my talents, and my passions. That's how I think about it now. So your talent is something that you're gift with, like your innate gifts for something. Like it could be, you know, you've seen people that are just innately fast, that you just put them on a track and they're just like ridiculously powerful and ridiculously fast. Um, So that's your talent. Your skill is something that you maybe not have, but you can definitely get better at. A good example for me was strength, right? I didn't have it at that point in time. I, I was really weak and scrawny, but I definitely had it in me to get stronger. I've never heard weak and scrawny in your yeah. name in the same <laughs> sentence, but that's cool. Kelly was also scrawny at one point. Aww. I'll have you know. And, and, yes. and still weak. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> okay, so skills, talents, and then passion is something that you genuinely enjoy doing. But I discovered that actually most people rely heavily on passion to start something or to get into something, but they forget that passion is something that you can also develop towards something. And especially if you're getting recognition and praise and notoriety from the thing that you're doing, you can definitely develop a passion for that because we're social beings. We crave acceptance. We crave belonging. We crave, you know, praise. It's in our nature. We crave attention. So you can definitely develop that even if it's something that you're not initially into. So that was the beginning of kind of my journey towards self-discovery and and towards finding another athletic avenue that made me feel fulfilled and made me feel, you know, some sort of like meaningful uh, journey, I guess. So it was during the time that CrossFit was kind of in its inception. And I was going to school at the University of Miami with Noah Olsen, who's a CrossFitter. And he was in one of my classes and he sat next to me in one of my classes and he was so jacked and he looked great. And I was like, man, like, what do you do? How do you look like that? And he told me CrossFit, there was a gym, Peak 360, about two miles away from campus. And he invited me over for a workout. And that was kind of my my gateway drug into the world of iron sports, into the gym, lifting weights. How did I not know that? I am going to text Noah immediately and be like, thank you. The world thanks you, Noah. Yeah. I mean, I had no idea. Oh my God. Yeah. And he must have been 13 years old. Yeah. He still is 13. (laughs) Yeah, Noah, why does he look younger every year? Yeah, no, he like grows a mustache and he looks way younger. He's a vampire. You all are vampires. Well, I I can only say this on this podcast because no one knows this to be true, but our daughters could care less about CrossFit. In fact, you know, if we care about it, they care less about it. But they have always loved Noah. He's like their one you know, they're like, ooh, Noah Olson. And one time Kelly did some kind of podcast or something with him and Noah made them a little video. And at the time they were maybe like, you know, 14 and 11 or something. But I mean, they like stoked, like deep stoke. Oh my God. He's an angel. He's amazing. But yeah, that's uh, kind of how I started getting into the whole world of lifting weights. And initially, again, because my biggest weakness was strength. I kind of naturally gravitated towards spending more time doing the Olympic lifts, doing, you know, my squat bench and deadlift, just trying to develop some level of general strength because I felt like I was so lacking in that. And next thing you know, I met an Olympic weightlifting coach. His name was Camilo Garcia. He he was the main coach for the national Cuban team and he actually for the Venezuelan team as well. And when he saw me, one of the first times he saw me, he just went, hey, do you maybe want to go to the Olympics? And I'm like, fuck yeah, why not? (laughs) Yes, I do. You're like, yes, I do. How's that for an intro? (laughs) Yes. And um, I started doing Olympic weightlifting full time. So I guess I'm on my fourth sport, not my third. So I went head in first and started training Olympic weightlifting with this coach that was amazing. Every morning he would text me at 6 a.m. with my morning workout that he he would physically write on a notebook like super, super old school, like super, you know, Cuban style. He would text me my morning workout. I would do it alone. And then in the afternoon, I would meet up with him for the second session. And we did that for six years straight. I was able to work my way up to 91 kilo snatch and a 120 kilo clean and jerk at 50 kilos body weight. It's ridiculous. Ridiculous. It's Olympic level. I didn't have a citizenship. 
So I couldn't even participate in nationals or, or any sort of tournament or qualify for anything. And I wasn't going to go back to Venezuela. It was so dangerous and it just impossible for the what I was doing with my life in school and such. And from there, because I got into graduate school and my family's always emphasized high level education first and foremost. And so have I. I got into graduates and in my head, I was like, I'm going to just put Olympic weightlifting on pause for the next two, three years. What I'm going to do is I'm going to be proactive, just continue getting stronger, worry or focus on just developing general strength through squat bench and deadlifts, maybe do Olympic weightlifting once or twice a week, something like that, just to maintain the technique and the mobility. And then I'll get back into it. That was my plan. But man, I was so good at powerlifting that, and, and I say this humbly, I just progressed so quickly and was doing things that nobody else had ever done before that I had to see it through the whole way. I wanted to see what I could do kind of thing. And that was the end of Olympic weightlifting and the beginning of powerlifting. So uh, having been a partner to someone who went to physical therapy school, which is what you went to, that was your graduate school, it's pretty rigorous and there's a lot going on. And, you know, somehow in the middle of that, we had a baby and started our own gym. So, you know, we obviously had a bit of spare time. Because it wasn't that hard. What was the timeline here? Were you training fully for powerlifting while you were in physical therapy school? And if so, how did you manage all that? Yeah, so that resonates with me because I also started my business in the first year of grad school. Do you remember getting pulled aside by the dean and saying, are you okay? Are you sure? This is insane. She says, look, I, oh my God. It was so bad for me. So I, my school had a policy that if you got anything less than a 75 on any test at any point in time, you got kicked off. It was 80 for us. It was 80 for you? Okay. Jesus Christ. Oh my God. I know. It's so mean. It was so mean. Honestly, that is not a, an environment that's conducive for learning. No, fear. I'm going to say the shout out to Martha Jewell. She failed out over half the program the year before between biomechanics and anatomy half the program washed out from those two classes. It's crazy. What's the point? I really don't get it. Not sure. And honestly, that was my biggest turnoff from school because like I was such a passionate student, really, like even in undergrad, like when I switched my major from business school to exercise phys, I was so stoked. Like this was like my life calling kind of thing. And I would sit in the front of the class and I would ask the difficult questions and I would read the additional material and I would do my research and I would write and I would be so stoked. And then I got to grad school and it was like just such a slap on the face. Like it's like they don't want me to learn. They just want me to regurgitate all of this information and that is extremely outdated and to shut up and to just do what I'm told and do it all under the most stressful conditions possible for any human being. Yeah. I mean, I think you perfectly described Kelly's exact situation. Yeah, it was so frustrating. I want to hear how you balance that, but I also want to know... I took a lot out of physio school and was like, oh, there's a lot of opportunity here because they're still playing this game. And I know that's got to be the truth for you. I mean, you had a business that was making money while you were in PT school. So did we. You know, I think like our passive revenue was like $70,000 a year, just kind of running our little crappy gym on the side, you know, and I remember being like, wait, what? I'm going to take a crappy job? I don't think so. Like, I'm going to go, you know, actually see what happens when we do this full time. Kellen, and you pioneered that. Like, I think I've told you this before, but before even I got into physical therapy school, like I was modeling off of you. I'm like, if this guy was able to go through PT school and find a way to disrupt the market and take what's being taught in PT school and commercialize it and make five times as much money as he could as a PT, like that's what I want to do. And own my own life. I mean, I think that's really the thing, right? Of course, freedom of time and place. My God. Yeah, it is interesting, though, that you both had, like, I would say, you know, mediocre to maybe sometimes bad experiences in school. But I don't know if you feel like this, but I know Kelly also simultaneously has no regrets, right? Like he doesn't, you know, he's so glad he has that education and just the deep understanding of certain things that he would not have gotten without having that education, even if it was like torture at times. Do you feel like that, too? Of course, it's always taking it back to first principles, right? Like, Having a deep understanding of things at its most fundamental level, it's what gives you the ability to think critically and get to your own conclusions, right? But you can't do that skipping the first step, which is understanding things at the most fundamental level. So absolutely. I mean, as much as I have kind of mixed feelings for traditional education and, and for the way that grad school was 
I guess, like the architecture of grad school. At the same time, like I wouldn't have done it any differently. I needed to go through that. I needed that education. I needed to understand things at the deepest level. And also then like the opportunities that the credentials give you, right? Just the authority to speak on so many topics and your ability to appraise research and understand things. I definitely feel like I got significantly smarter from going through grad school alone. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by our new offering, our brand new book, Built to Move. Which is actually available for purchase now. Uh, You can check it out at builttomove.com or on any platform where you buy books. We are very excited. This thing is not only our best work to date, but I think it's the first book in my understanding that has literally put a line in the sand. We've given you benchmarks and vital signs around key aspects of your physical behavior and your movement behavior. And for us, the things that we emphasize in this book are the things that we do day-to-day in our own life consistently and have moved the levers for us the most. you're a working mom who runs a business and has a couple kids. Well, that's the other thing we've tried to do in this book is acknowledge that people are busy and maxed out and confused by the fitness space. And we've tried to help with tools and strategies for how you can actually fit these things into a busy time crunch life. If you are an athlete trying to go better, you will find some blind spots that will allow you to work harder. If you're a non-exerciser or you know a non-exerciser in your life, this book is for them. It will create basic movement behaviors, environmental behaviors that will make you feel better and move through the world better. Check it out. Learn more at builttomove.com or anywhere you buy your books. That's really cool. I'm a huge, gigantic. I mean, I agree. I have mixed feelings about our educational system and I don't know, things are changing and probably education isn't changing fast enough, but I had the same experience with my own education and feel the same way about it. But maybe the three of us also went through at a time where like a lot of things were shifting. I mean, no one can project you, the rise of the internet, the blowing up of strength conditioning. You also happen to be like, oh, I'm just the best in the world at a sport ever. I mean, there's a lot of things that are happening all at once. And the school isn't can't be nimble. It takes a minute to set up a school, to organize the principles. Right, it's institutional. It's institutional. Yeah. It's yeah. tricky that, you know, because we get asked all the time, like, what would you change? And I was like, well, there's a lot I'd change, you know, but what do you, what do you throw away? And what do you, you know, I had to write a business plan as part of our graduation, but I just wrote it about like our, our business existing business was our existing business. Yeah, like we already had one. I was so like, was why am I sweet. pretending to do this, you know? Yeah. So just um, back to my question, though. I mean, so you're you start you're in grad school, you start your business, which maybe you could tell our listeners about that as well. And you're a competitive powerlifter. Were you just like, I've got the grit and the determination and you know, you just made it happen? Um, if you want something done, give it to a busy woman. Yeah, yeah. Just tell us about what that was all like mixing all that together. Yeah. So I was competing in Olympic weightlifting at that time. And I was honestly just documenting my training on Instagram. It was, I think I got into Instagram about two years after the platform was initially built. And I was just using it as kind of like a log just to record my training and to so I I could see my progress over time kind of thing. And next thing you know, I started growing an audience of people who were interested in my training and in my progress. Then when I got into graduate school, and I was putting Olympic weightlifting on the kind of back burner and doing more a combined or a mix of Olympic weightlifting and powerlifting with functional bodybuilding. That was the training style that I was doing. And people seemed to be really interested in that. And so me and my partner at the time, we thought, well, if there's an interest and there's a need in the market, then why don't we try to fulfill that? And so we started working on creating our our own software. It was initially going to be a website Back in that time, I think the only available kind of like white label software that existed was Train Heroic. At the time, they would take 30% of whatever you were making. And when we did the math, we were like, well, we might as well make our own technology and not pay somebody 30%. That's kind of like where our thought process initially. And we started working on our website and we came up with a waiting list for a, for people to beta test our training and our software. And we got like 600 people in it. And at that time, I mean, I had a small following. I had maybe 10,000 followers at the time. And my partner had maybe 30,000 at most. And still, we were able to get about 600 people on that waiting list. So it just became very clear that 
there was a, a definite interest and that we had an interesting product that was a little bit different to other people's training plans. So we leaned into that and we invested a lot of money into that technology, into the software and building a team. I think a year later, we opened our first physical gym. And two years later, we expanded into an app. And it was every year after that, we kind of added another vertical to our business. But as far as like balancing everything out goes and being in grad school and, and starting a business and competing at the highest level, it's funny because like I'm so desensitized to stress that it didn't feel that bad. It even like feels weird to say because I, it was a lot. You know, I was I'm not going to try to like sugarcoat it, but I was sleeping maybe two, three hours a night, I would wake up at 5am just to pop an Adderall. Like I would literally pop an Adderall at 5am, go back to sleep, let the Adderall wake me up at around 6am, review my classes and the material for the classes, go to class, stay there for whatever, eight hours, pop another, another Adderall, take a bunch of Red Bull, a bunch of caffeine, go to the library, then go to the gym at 9pm. Oh, do you remember what it's like to be young? Oh, oh man. man. So resilient. You're so resilient. Trust me, I'm not like that anymore. I feel <laughs> the aging. <laughs> I feel it. That is a banana story. And you know what's bananas? I just want everyone to appreciate this, that when I was in PT school many years ago, people left their relationships to go move into the dorms so they could study full time. Was They felt it was that hard and that rigorous. They shut everything else down and you were pivoting and saying, hey, there's a real opportunity here. I just have to survive. I say it all the time, I, I couldn't do it again. If you were like, Kelly, you have to go back and be like, nope, I'm going to I'm gonna do any other thing. I honestly don't think I could do it again either. And that I ended up getting kicked out of grad school. That's, uh, sorry, I got sidetracked. But I got a 74 in one of the tests I did. Oh my God. No. 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 I did. It's embarrassing. But listen, I had never failed a test in my life. It's just not me, right? So it was one of the winter breaks and I was in Canada, like skiing or who, who knows what, what I was doing. And I came back home and there was like, I don't know, 10 letters underneath my door. And I opened them and I'm like, what the hell is this? And so the first one just said that I had been withdrawn from the program because I got a 74 on a test. Then the second one was like, okay, if you don't respond, then we're for real going to kick you out. And the third one, fourth, sixth, seventh one was, thank you, but no, thank you. You've been officially removed from the program because you didn't even contact us about your, your failed class. And I was like, oh my God, like the possibility of failing a class didn't even cross my mind at any point. Like I just, you know, I left my computer at home during winter break. I didn't open my school email. I was skiing and having a great winter break. And I came back and I was kicked out of the program. Awesome. I made an appointment with the Committee of Academic Review and I had to go and like plead my case and, and explain why I deserved a second chance. And just imagine this, it was a room with a round table with every single professor from the department. So it's like 20 people, 20 professors and me at the head of the table. And the, what they opened up the discussion with was, why do you think you deserve a second chance? And I had so many reasons, but I didn't even know how, because it was so obvious to me. I'm like, are you kidding me? Obviously I deserve a second chance. I got a 74 in clinical eval. Like I probably forgot to put history on the first, you know what I mean? Like it's such a silly mistake. Where do you want me to begin to tell you that I deserve a second chance? So <laughs> nothing. I pled my case. The part that shocked me the most from this conversation was I had one of my, my spine professors was sitting on the, on my left-hand side and he just went, look, Steph, I mean, I'm sorry to say this, but I just don't think you're as strong as a student as you think you are. And my advice to you is going to be to... Stop trying to play sports at the highest level and seek counseling so that you can officially and efficiently part ways with that part of your career and just focus full time in school because simply you don't have what it takes to do both. And I was like, thank goodness that person said that to you. That just lit a fire up my ass. I was like, I understand where you're coming from. I understand that that's the way that it might you know, be coming across, but I'm going to have to respectfully disagree. And I would just love a second chance to prove to all of you that I can be a student, a professional student and a professional athlete at the highest level. And I did not only that, but I also started a seven figure business during that time. Thank you. Very much. It's good douche. <laughs> I feel so vindicated. I was the blackest of the black sheep in my whole PT school. Oh my God. 
Me too. After that, all of my professors hated me. Yeah. And even, I don't know if you experienced this, sorry to interrupt Kelly, but like even the other students really struggled. I mean, he had a couple of friends, but mostly the other student students didn't really like him because, Same. you know, they felt like he got to bend the rules and he got special treatment and that he was, all, you know, and so he definitely was like sort of isolated and he had a couple of close friends, you, but you, like mostly I, people didn't like him. I have to tell the story. Juliet and I, before my first year of PT school, started a week-long leadership school for kids with HIV. So one of our friends was a director of pediatric infectious disease for the NIH. All of these kids, poor kids from around the country with HIV. And at the time, pediatric HIV was killing kids. It wasn't controlled. We would bring 20 kids in and we'd go whitewater kayaking for a week. And we'd sleep outside. And, and we had run this. And that was like something we're going to continue to run. And I, one of my classes, I think it was like, cardiology. I was like, hey, I've got this thing coming up. I'll cover all my things. And they were like, well, no one takes a week off in the middle of school. I'm like, well, I'm going to. So you have two choices. You're going to let me do that or you're going to kick me out. And they were like, well, if you fail, you fail. And I was like, cool, you said it. I won't fail. And that was literally the system is trying to make me do one thing and Juliet was just would, you know, talk me down off the ledge over and over. Yeah, and over he again. was swimming upstream that whole time, like always. Swimming oh, upstream. man. Yep. I had to because my presence at powerlifting meets or just networking events was so important for my business to continue growing, pretty much every weekend I had to take off on a Thursday. So I was missing, we didn't have class on Friday, but we did have class on Thursday. So I missed a ton of either Thursday classes or Monday classes. Like I would alternate between missing one and one like that. But same thing. I mean, I was met with so much resistance, like instead of being encouraged for like being a pioneer and disrupting the system and like being a creator and providing jobs for people, instead of being celebrated for that, I was constantly shamed. I was made feel bad for it by my professors and my classmates, just like you. Success is the best revenge. Oh, it really is. It really is. And what's funny is that after all of that, after all the shit that I was put through during grad school, at the end, after graduation, I think, actually, yeah, the day of graduation, I missed my graduation because I had a powerlifting meet and I broke a bunch of world records that day. <laughs> and guess what? My school wrote a whole piece about me, how proud they are. Look at, you know, look at all the world records she's breaking. I'm like, wow, that's crazy. Like You bet they did. Yeah. You guys didn't make it any easier for me to do that, but now you want to clout. That's amazing. Okay. So tell us about becoming the strongest woman ever. And when was that not enough? It never is enough. When is it enough? I mean, getting into powerlifting, like I said, I, I always say that powerlifting chose me. I didn't intend to get into it. It was just, uh, for me, it was uh, a temporary thing that I was going to do so I can position my, so I can position myself better in Olympic weightlifting when I went back to it. Like that was my intention, but I got strong so fast and I was doing things that had never been done before. And I just felt that I had to keep going. Genuinely, I didn't really enjoy powerlifting at all. I didn't enjoy the training. I didn't enjoy competing. I didn't enjoy the sport at all. <laughs> Way to sell it, strongest woman ever in the history of the world. I really didn't. Look, I have so much respect for powerlifters and, and I appreciate the community and everything that it's done for me, but I never enjoyed it. I really didn't. But then again, that also just allowed me to, to tap into a whole other gear mentally, right? Just I was doing a sport that was already boring, that was more boring for me. I'm an athlete. I like to be challenged physically and I like to be able to showcase my skill. And I just felt like powerlifting wasn't it in that sense. Like it, it was just a one dimensional sport that tested one very specific performance indicator. And I just felt very kind of like blunted by it. And I felt like I had so much more to show in terms of my athleticism. But at the same time, I was monetizing heavily from it. And I was building a brand that was 100% based on uh, the fact that I was a strong woman. And so I just felt like I had to keep going. It makes sense though. I mean, in terms of all the complexity in your life, traditional strength training is pretty routinized. You know what the path is. You can either do the path. It's something I actually feel like if you're listening to this, you can actually take this away if your life is really crazy, simplifying to a few metrics, bench, deadlift, squat, those are simple things that you can kind of just keep noodling on and make good gains yeah. without lots and lots of complexity. And I think that really is, I mean, it's amazing that of all the sports you chose, you chose the sport where you could actually really thrive, even though you, like someone had thrown a blanket over your fire, you know? 
yeah, so it was a good sport for that time period of my life, definitely, but not what I wanted to do forever, I guess. I am grateful that I actually think I got to watch you lift one time and uh, before we were friends. And uh, so I actually got to see you compete when you're still competing. I might get back into it. Yeah, that's really cool. Well, so you now are training as a professional boxer. And what I, A, I'd love to hear about what that's like and how it's different, but also because you talked about how much your powerlifting was connected to your business and your monetization of your business, was that like a difficult transition for you to make because you thought, okay, well, now I'm going to be doing this and are the people following me not going to get it? And is it going to have a financial impact? Was that a consideration? And did you perhaps stay in powerlifting longer because you were worried about that side of your business? Oh my God. Yeah, absolutely. I stayed in powerlifting for, I think, an additional two years after I was already thinking about quitting. And after I had already accumulated a bunch of chronic injuries that were making it incredibly difficult for me to progress, just like the pain that I had to endure and go through for marginal gains was insane. Those last two years of my competitive lifting career. I mean, was it worth it? Yeah, probably because I, I was able to recover physically from all that damage, but it was really, really tough. It really was. And I was scared of transitioning out of it because like I said, I mean, my entire my entire income is dependent on that image that I've built as a powerlifter. So it was a little bit nerve wracking, but at the same time, I mean, I always find a way. I always figure out a way to make things work. So the same time I was confident in my ability to pivot and to figure out a way to make my audience follow me, I guess. Man, I am on the call with two of the grittiest women around. I swear, you two are so gritty. I remember the time where I had only known you as a strength athlete and really impressive strength athlete who moved beautifully. One who I was like, oh, this is how you should lift. You should lift and move like this. This is like a great template for beautiful movement. And I remember watching you kick a soccer ball at the track and being like, what? <laughs> You're an athlete underneath that? Because a lot of times I have found that powerlifting sometimes can attract people who aren't very athletic, but who know how to really persevere and are very strong, but not necessarily, you know, mutants. You can walk around 800, but you can't tie your shoes and cut or twist. Yeah, because from a skill level, the entry level for powerlifting is virtually nothing. Is like, can you sit down and stand back up? <laughs> and yet I'll put bench pressing as one of the most technical lifts there is. Like it's so gnarly and technical. Comma, all of a sudden I'm watching you box. And I remember having this moment where I was like, oh my God, I did not realize how athletic you were. And then I found out, oh, I was like, oh, she played soccer growing up. And she, you always had this latent athleticism. We're definitely here about boxing, but I think it's so interesting that you had all of this experience cutting, running, sprinting, twisting, being athletic. And then you are able to harness that into these specific sports. Because again, the conversation Jill and I are having a lot of times with our kids is how do we expose them enough to enough things that they can either choose to be able to dip into those pools and wells and serve themselves or not. And we don't have any aspirations that our kids are necessarily going to be the chosen ones. Maybe one might be, but uh, you know, really we want them to have this love of being able to go out into the world and play. And it seems like soccer set you early up for that. It really did. I really do think that the combination of soccer being just such a dynamic and complete sport, you know, that takes into account your footwork, your hand-eye coordination, your ability to, to produce rotational force, your endurance, your power, your speed was such a complete sport. And then pair that with all the development that I had in the weight room. It was just the perfect combination for anything else. It was just the perfect kind of like baseline of general physical preparedness that I could possibly have. Seriously, I make Caroline seesaw press after a, a tournament yesterday. You know, I was like, come on in. We got 10 minutes. We're going to go seesaw press because this is the way and having these little micro doses of, you know, Olympic lifting, et cetera, et cetera, to support the whole thing. I was just going to tell you, I was going to mention this earlier when we were talking about soccer, but I missed my chance. But interestingly, we, now that we're almost 50 and our friends are similar age to us, we have noticed that our friends who were young soccer players now at our age still seem to be the ones who can pick up other sports the most quickly. We have a neighbor who was uh, played soccer in high school and then also played in college. And he literally had never, we liked to mountain bike. He'd never mountain biked in his entire life. 
and we took him out mountain biking. And after one ride, he was already better than us. That same thing would be true in, I think, any sport we exposed him to. So there's just, again, I'm sure there's many factors, but there's something to say for the sort of lifelong. You're saying the collegiate soccer player turned out to be a good athlete? But it's still just, there's something about just, but soccer, right? Like we keep having these people we know who are like, why are you such a good athlete? And you're in, stuck in an old body. Mm. And they're like, oh, I played soccer. So there's something really complete about that sport. And, you know, when young people do it, it really does seem to have this like lasting impact on their ability to be athletic. I don't know what it is. I totally agree with that. I've never met a soccer player, like somebody who developed their ability to play sports using soccer. I've never met anybody who has that background and isn't athletic. So here you are, you've got some decent skills at force of rate of development of force. You're very strong. You have this background in, in soccer and contact and collision with other human beings. What is missing from boxing? Because boxing is classic sport, but oftentimes if you didn't grow up golden gloves, like it's hard to get the reps in. Where were your blind spots or sort of where are you finding is just opportunity? Is it is it just back to the old Steffi model where you're like, I cannot work you and persevere and make the gains? Yeah, pretty much. I just don't think that there is anybody else in the world who works harder and more intentionally than me and who can do the mundane shit for as long as I like if this if this takes me 20 years to get to the top, you bet that I'm gonna be here for 20 years. However long you're in. I'm in. Exactly. I'm in. And I'm a student. I'm always a student forever for life for anything that I do. So my eyes are open. My ears are open. I'm constantly studying other people. I'm constantly looking for feedback. It's not only the work that I'm putting in, but the intention behind the work, you know, and, and I genuinely don't leave any stones unturned. You know, I have the best team behind me. I'm working with Andy Galpin for my conditioning. I'm working with Victoria Felker for my supplements. I have a sports psychologist. I have a psychiatrist. I have an amazing strength and conditioning coach. So I have access to really, really incredible people that are helping me tap into my fullest potential as a boxer too. A little different than being 18 years old and yeah, trying yeah, to figure yeah. out where to get, where to eat, huh? Exactly. I definitely learned how to problem solve. So for people who aren't already following you, where are you in this professional boxing journey? Like when did, you know, how long have you been doing it? Are you already competing at what level? Like, you know, give us the, give people the 411. So it was 2020, the beginning of lockdown. I was having some relationship issues. I was just so fed up by just where I was at in my life. Just what's funny is that it was a point in my life where I remember before shit hit the fan with everything that I had going on right then and there, I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, I'm way too comfortable. And that makes me really uncomfortable. I don't like it when things are so smooth and so comfortable. Like I've been competing in powerlifting for five, six years. I'm crushing it. I'm at the top. Nothing feels like a challenge. Training doesn't feel challenging anymore. My relationship is too smooth. My job is doing really well. And then next thing you know, <laughs> just shit baby fan from every single angle. That's what led me to to want to kind of chase something different, something. Ch- Did you have boxing friends? No. Well, I guess Tony Senmanat, real world tactical, was kind of the only person in, in the combat sports world that I had access to at that time. Did someone say to you, you'd be a great boxer? No. And I was 20, I was turning 29 that year. Nobody believed I could become a boxer. I wanted to be a boxer, but every time I would mention it, people would be like, you're too old. In full disclosure, I remember when you were boxing, I was like, oh, look, Steffi's gotten on the boxing craze. Like boxing became very cool. We saw people like, you know, bridges, take a fight. We saw people kind of messing around, taking fights a little bit. I was like, well, I don't feel like this. You're like a dilettante. You're not just like an amusement. I was just really curious to see who stuck in it. And of course, you (laughs) stuck in it. Of course, it's Steffi. (laughs) So look, I bought a heavy bag. I put it, I hung it on my squat rack. (laughs) (laughs) I bought a a pair of like cheap Fairtex gloves that I was kind of trying to put to use. And then I dusted my running shoes and I was like, all right, like I'm going to go run a mile, one mile. I'm going to go run a mile. I couldn't do more than 400, 400 meters without my legs being incredibly pumped and my lungs burning to an extent that I'd never felt before. What is happening? I used to run half marathons. I used to play 
90 minutes of soccer, no problem. And here I am 400 meters and I'm dead. Like this is definitely a problem. I'm 29 years old. So I also saw it as an opportunity to connect with my fitness again. And, and like I said, to play, to just have fun, you know, powerlifting became a job and it became something that I really didn't really want to do. And so I saw boxing as an opportunity to reconnect with my fitness and, and to reconnect with my inner child, just to play and have fun and meet people and learn a new skill and, you know, just enjoy what my body can do. That's, that's really how it started. And then a couple of months later, I got an email from a promoter in Dubai that was hosting the Thor versus Eddie Hall fight. And he invited me on that show and offered me a substantial amount of money. I'd never been paid that much for anything athletic related. So I was like, fuck it. That's amazing. You know, my entire life, I've wanted to be a professional athlete that gets compensated fairly. And this might be it. I'm confident in my work and in my ability to, to learn new skills. So I feel like I could potentially turn this into something. So I started training for that fight. It was, I had eight months to prepare for that fight. I didn't have any previous fighting experience at all, but there was this massive opportunity to perform at a big stage and to get paid. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to be all in. So I did. I actually ended up taking my first professional fight about two months before that one, just because I wanted to get a little bit more experience with just under the lights and in the ring. And so I flew to Dominican Republic and fought for the first time there. And then two or three months later, I flew to Dubai for my second one. And it was that one. You're committed. And how, and how did mean, that go? Did you like it? So my first fight was really easy. I fought a can and it was awesome. My second fight, I should have fought a can again, because that's usually what you do when you're starting your boxing career. You're not fighting tough opponents, but I wanted to make a statement. I wanted to, I wanted to make sure people understood that I wasn't an influencer boxer. I was just a boxer, just an athlete trying a new sport kind of thing. So I chose an opponent that was incredibly tough. She was an Olympic alternate for Colombia. She had uh, 10 years of martial arts experience. She was 24 years old, significantly younger than me as well. And she was a really, really tough opponent. And I remember I, I got in the ring with her and as the rounds went by, she became perceptually larger to me. <laughs> I swear to God. Like, it was like she was getting taller and bigger and meaner every round that went by. I'm like, what the fuck is happening? And man, she was catching me with some strong shots. It hurt so bad. The fight ended in a draw. And I remember as soon as I got out of the ring, I'm like, fuck this shit. I'm never doing this again. Like, why am I doing this? I have a business that's thriving, you know, on the basis of me doing something that I, where I don't have to get hit in the face. I don't need this for anything to make money or for anything else. Like this is stupid. I'm not doing this ever again. That's what I thought as soon as I got out of the ring. Then I went to the changing room. I got changed. I washed my face and I was like, wow, am I going to pull another Steffi Cohen coward story from when I was 17? Or am I actually going to lean into this discomfort and like, just take it for what it is and see how far I can actually take this if I apply myself. And that was the moment I decided that I really wanted to do it for real. And that the fear and discomfort that I was going through was worth it. It was worth it for the sake of writing the story I want to tell in the future. That's essentially the driving force for every decision that I make is like, I just want to live an interesting life. I want to live a difficult life, a life that's full of challenges and obstacles that I can overcome and then look back fondly at. You know, that's the kind of life I want to live. So that's the moment I decided that I wanted to do it all the way. I love hearing just how it comes full circle since we started talking about your soccer career and, you know, your regrets about quitting and how you use that to motivate you. But, you know, the other thing I thought about is that most people aren't trying to face discomfort and have a difficult life. Most people are doing the opposite, right? They're trying to find comfort and take as few risks as possible. And I don't know, just be comfortable. I guess, what is it about being uncomfortable and putting yourself in those positions that you find to be valuable as a human? It's just how it makes you grow afterwards. I just feel like without going through those periods of challenge and discomfort, you just stay completely stagnant. It's through those obstacles and that discomfort that you find out more about yourself, about who you really are, about how much grit you really have, about how willing you are to live and to accomplish things. And it is in that process that I, I feel the most fulfilled and I feel the most alive. So, I mean, 
I don't judge anybody who doesn't chase discomfort at all. You know, I guess like we all have our own definitions of success and our own, we assign whatever meaning we want to our life, whatever meaning of life it is. For me, it's not the same as it is for you. But yeah, I mean, for me personally, it's like every time that I've gone through really difficult times, I've discovered kind of another layer of myself. And that to me is everything. It's really exciting and, and it's extremely fulfilling. Two questions. One is, when is your next fight? You have one scheduled? Yes. It's June 8th. Amazing. Where is it? It's in LA. And then I have a big one in, in Madison Square Garden towards the end of the, of the year. Ooh. Oh, yeah. We'll we want to come to that one. We're going to come to that one too. The next thing is, after boxing, what will be the next sport you dominate? <laughs> It's a good question. You know, believe it or not, I, I'm already thinking about it. I think I'm gravitating more towards like extreme endurance sports, like David Gogging style. Well, let me just say, greediest women I know. Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> you you can uh, see your future, be your future. Thank you for talking with us today. I love learning things about you and also recognizing that I'm not the blackest sheep at VT school. I'm right there with you. <laughs> Where do people follow your journey? Where do we get more of the Steffi experience. You can find me on all platforms at Steffi Cohen. Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. Can't wait to see you. Thank you so much, Steffi. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop it.